Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, we continue in the book of Galatians, which I am having so much fun in. I hope you are. It's uh, very enjoyable to be preaching. Sam, can you find your way? All right, you've, I think, heard of Pilgrim's Progress and its author, John Bunyan, maybe? John Bunyan was a preacher, uh, born in 1628, died in 1688. When he was a young man, he was not a good man. He actually wrote of himself that he, it was his delight to be captive Uh, By the devil in his will, he was filled with all unrighteousness that from a child he had no equals in regards to cursing, swearing, lying, and blaspheming God's holy name. (laughs) Uh, He was full of rebellion. When he was 16 years old, his mother and sister died a year apart, and then he went into the uh, fight on behalf of Cromwell in the English Civil War. And at one instance, he was supposed to go besiege a city, and then he stayed back, and somebody else went in his place, and that man was killed, and it started to wake him up to his peril. Sometime later, he found a church. John Gifford was his pastor, and he began to read Luther's commentary on Galatians, which I can't recommend enough. It is so good. And he was reading it, and he said it was, he, he, his heart was profoundly moved. And while he was walking through a field one day, Christ's righteousness, that is the, the way that God forgives our sins and counts us as righteous, Christ's righteousness revealed to his soul. Bunyan writes, one day as I was passing through the field, this sentence, so he's reading as he's walking through the field. <laughs> what a delight. What a man. So one day as I was passing in the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. That the way that God makes him clean and pure is Christ, and Christ is in heaven, so his righteousness is there. My righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks righteousness. For my righteousness was right before him. Moreover, I saw that it wasn't because of my goodness of heart that my righteousness was made better. Nor that my badness of heart, that my righteousness made worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, who is the same yesterday today and forever, and so did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loose from my afflictions and irons. My temptations began to flee away, and I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. That's what we're learning in Galatians. That's, the, that's what I hope God grants you the experience of. Now, I'm not saying that you don't know it, but don't we need to experience it again? Don't you want times in your marriage where you love your spouse, you love your husband, you love your wife, and yet you're just kind of going on in maturity? And don't you want every once in a while again to feel afresh what you did at the beginning? 
And that's what I hope. As we see in the verses we're going to be in this morning, which are the heart of this book, we're at the, we're at the base, we're at like the, 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 the core of it, especially verse 26, that God grants you kind of a refreshed, renewed experience of the freedom, the welcome, the joy of being righteous in God's eyes because of Christ who is your righteousness. And so pay attention. In Hebrews 4, 7, we read today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Isn't that something? In the preaching of his word, you're to hear God's voice. Not because I am God, not because I'm anything like God, but by the preaching of his word, God himself is speaking to you. And so don't harden your heart. Listen. Listen, what, was God, what is God going to say to you? He's going to, 1 John 5.13, You who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. God is speaking that. Maybe you don't have eternal life. Maybe you've refused Christ. And God is calling you to lay down your pride, to humble yourself, to see the awful situation that you are under the wrath of God. And to know that he would forgive you this moment if you would but look to Christ. It's God speaking. I hope that the effect of this sermon is that you might believe as a kind of constant source of comfort and help and reassurance that God your Father is preparing a place for you because of Christ. And that you'll be with him forever. And so pay attention, brothers and sisters. All right, let's read uh, Galatians three twenty-four to 29. We'll be looking mainly at 26 to 29. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's ask God's help. Kind and heavenly Father, you who gives all things necessary for life and godliness, you who keep your people in your love until the end, please grant us ears to hear and hearts to believe that we who are your sons through faith in Christ Jesus might live to your glory and honor and give you thanks because you deserve them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I said, we are here at the heart of the letter. This is the heart of the matter. This is the truth of the truths. This is it. And so I, I want you to get it, especially verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Now, there are two issues in our text that are, well, the first is in, um, controversial maybe, or at least difficult. The first is in verse 27. How does baptism relate to our salvation? Because if you are careful and attentive, you hopefully will be somewhat confused by what he says in verse 27 or at least 
have a question. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, what is the relationship between baptism and your salvation? That's a question. It's one that has caused a lot of division and controversy. How necessary or is baptism necessary to your salvation? That's one. Second, then, is verse 28. Now, verse 28 hasn't been controversial in the history of the church like verse 27. It's only been controversial in the church since the late 1800s and the rise of feminism and all of the very stupid ways that the feminists interpret this verse. It's just insane. Because there's neither male nor female, male and female, right? So it doesn't matter if you're male or female. You can do whatever you want in the church. Men and women, doesn't matter. Women can do whatever men can do because there it says it. That's what some teach that that means. And they're just... It's so dumb. But it's so secondary to the main point of this text. It distracts you from the main point of the text. Which is to reassure you that God is graciously, favorably inclined to you because of faith only. So what I want to do is I want to preach the goodness of the gospel that reassures us today and then a week from today consider baptism and then verse 28 and it'll be fun next week but this should be more fun all right so what, what what's going on here what's going on again is in the galatian church there are some people who are teaching that the only way to be a son of God, the only way to be an heir of all of the promises God has given, particularly those to Abraham, is if you believe in Jesus and practice circumcision and eat the right foods and don't eat the wrong foods and so on and so forth. And so this was troubling to those who weren't doing those things, right? If you had faith in Jesus, but you were eating bacon, or if you had faith in Jesus and you weren't yet circumcised, then you were not yet fully a son of God, not yet an inheritor of God's promises, and it was in doubt whether or not you were under God's wrath or under His favor, if you were bound for heaven or bound for hell. And Paul, doing a lot of groundwork up to this point, He gets to verse 26, makes it like stupid simple. Very, very plain and clear. For in Christ, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. Period. Nothing else. And this sweet and simple sentence is your and my life. That's it. In Christ Jesus, you are all fully, completely, without any lack in comparison to anybody else, sons of God. Not by works, not by 
heritage, not by wealth, not by sex, but only through faith in Christ. So you come to God and you realize you owe Him millions of dollars in unrepayable debt. It's there in the ledger. You know it. And you simply believe His goodness and you walk out zero. That's it. That's the goodness of God in Christ. That's what's being seen here. Now, this word guardian in verse 24 and 25, now I want you to know, sometimes you have a view of a pastor as like born with all knowledge of everything in the Bible. And you guys come to us and say, I was reading in 1 Kings six twelve, and you surely know exactly what that means, so would you please expound it for me? And you don't know that what I do during the week is I don't have a clue what that word guardian means. And so I read other people who know what the word guardian means, and I come on Sunday and tell you what they told me. And so your pastors are not born with this knowledge innate. And so what does the word guardian mean? It's very important. Now, our, we don't necessarily have an English word. Some translate it differently. Tutor. Other, we just don't have an English word that gets at what this is. Okay, when you were born in Greek society, especially to any prominent family, for your first little bit, you were kept by a wet nurse and then by a nanny. Somebody who took care of you when you were an infant. But then when you got to a little bit older, four or five, whatever, they would take one of their most trusted slaves and he would be your like 24-7 strictest babysitter you ever had. We had two babysitters growing up. One we greatly preferred and one who we didn't. Because one was very permissive. Like, you know, our wildest dreams were met. And one who we couldn't get away with anything. And, and, and the word guardian here is like that one, but you are 24-7 under their scrutiny. You couldn't leave the house without this person. And this person was in charge of teaching you manners and disciplining you severely physically if you stepped outside of your manners or did anything wrong. And you had this person until you reached adulthood. It was a very difficult micromanaging severe, oppressive situation. And that's what the law is. The law does that to us. Now, the law doesn't function by helping you before Christ become a gradually better person so that then you're ready to accept Jesus. That's what the false teachers were saying. That you need to read what God commands and start keeping it in order to be accepted by God. So the law isn't like a babysitter that's actually helping you become a better person. It's not because there's any fault in the law. There's a fault in us. Kids, you get this, right? 
you typically want to do opposite of what your mom and dad tell you to do, even if you know what your mom and dad tell you to do is absolutely the best thing possible. You're, you're bent in your nature to kick against, fight against, even something that you know is absolutely the best way to go about it. Right? Do you see that about yourself? Your parent says, go right, and you just want to go left. Right? That's what the law, meeting with your sinful nature, does. And every time you read it, you're accused of it. And, and, and it even inflames you to want to do more in disobedience to it. That's the kind of guardianship of the law, meeting our sinful flesh. And then Christ comes. So Luther says, with its whippings, the law dries us to Christ. Why? Because what this guardian does is constantly remind you that there's nothing good in you. That there's no hope of reconciliation with God to be found in you. Because every time you meet the law, all you meet is your sin and want more of it. And so you realize by this oppression of the law that you're starving and then Christ is the feast. And all you do is say, yeah. You realize again that you have an impossibly unrepayable debt and all that God says is just trust Christ and it's forgiven. You go, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That you live the law shows you that you're in perpetual darkness and blindness. You can't see anything. And that if you turn to Christ, it's now light and sight and beauty and goodness and glory. And you just go, yeah, that's it. And what's going on in our text is what's exactly going on in our world, but from a different way. What is our world crazy about more than anything else? What's like our... One thing that we got to have more than anything else right now? Come on. Starts in an E, ends in equality. Equality. That's our like highest virtue. We talk about equality. You've heard it equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. But m- m- most of the world, it's just like a parading righteousness. It's just a show. They don't really care about equality. They just be care to be seen to care about equality. But when you come to the gospel, what we see in our text is that everyone without distinction is equal before God's law. Everybody. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. German or Slav, French or Indian. It doesn't, it doesn't matter before God's law. You're equally condemned. It, it doesn't matter if you're slave or free, rich or poor, fat or thin, tall or short, beautifully bald or hairy. 
It doesn't matter. You're equally guilty. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. There's equality before God's law. Everyone is equally, before God's law, guilty. Even more so, before Christ, none of those distinctions, none of those divisions are any advantage to you to gaining Christ. All of those distinctions, though they remain in place, though they are true, are transcended. You cannot get closer to Jesus based on anything about you. Nothing about you is useful in you gaining the inheritance of God of salvation. Did you know that? Nothing. But I don't think you know that actually. I think you actually believe there's some things about you that raise you a little bit above other people around you. Because that's what we're like. Because you grew up in that church, not that church. Your parents didn't divorce. Theirs did. You never had an addiction. They have. You don't drive a foreign vehicle. They do. Your parents never voted Democrat. Theirs did. You read the right translation of the Bible, not the message or the NIV. And so there's something about you. You wear the right skirt length, not the wrong. You wear the right new style of jeans, not boot cut. Whatever it is, you can take anything and look at it as if it makes you just a cut above, a notch above. You're in ministry. And what Paul is doing here is making it very clear. All of those things count nothing. They don't matter in the least. In fact, for you to put any hope in them is the only thing that's a disadvantage. Why? In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's it. So, Galatians, go a few books to the right to Philippians, chapter 3. Very very familiar verses, the first several. And dealing with the same issue here, look at verse two, look out for the dogs, those who mutilate those look out for the evil those, those who mutilate the flesh, right? They're teaching that you need to be circumcised in order to get to God. If you are circumcised, it's an advantage to you gaining God's eternal favor. And Paul says, No, 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 look at verse four. I in comparison to them, in comparison to you, Paul is saying this, I have way more reasons in myself for confidence in my flesh. 
if anybody has an advantage in God taking notice of him and God accepting him based on who he is, it's me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am an Israelite. I am not only an Israelite, I am of the right tribe of Israel. Benjamin, I, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee according to the law. Like I'm a part of the right clubs. I was zealous. I have a blameless righteousness under the law. And what do you do with all those advantages? You chuck them. You vomit them out. You flush them. You count them as nothing. Why? Because it's either just Jesus is righteous through faith or nothing. That's it. That's the gospel. And so we don't glory in ourselves. We don't hold ourselves in higher esteem in comparison to others. We just have Jesus through faith. That's it. Now I said next week I'm going to hit on these difficulties related to baptism, related to verse 28, but let me do something a little bit in verse 28 to help you maybe see the goodness of this. Verse 28, you have these differences. Jew-Greek, slave-free, male or female. And if you read the Bible at all, you know these differences in the Bible are very important. They're talked about all over the place. The difference between Jew and Greek. It's a big deal in the Bible. The difference between slave and free, even in the New Testament. And then the difference, of course, between men and women. These are mega foundational important differences, right? And, and what Paul is doing is saying, hey, look, look at these three differences. Look at how important they are. Even they give you no advantage as far as God's acceptance. The things that could give you an advantage, these most important distinctions, if you were on the right side of them, if you were a Jewish free man, in our day as if you were a black female transgender, that's the advantage. We still do this. And you too could get a college scholarship. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's our world. That's how stupid we are. So you take these very important distinctions and Paul is saying they matter nothing in regards to acceptance with God. And that for the people who were under this false teaching would have been like the first 60 degree day in April. It would have been getting a diagnosis of stage 4 terminal cancer and then getting a phone call and saying, whoops, we mixed up the results. You don't have cancer. For them, it was utter freedom. I'm not condemned because I'm a Greek. I'm not less in God's sight because I'm a slave. I'm not you know, relegated to second-class citizenry because I'm a woman. We're a man in our culture today. I'm, I'm equal before God just because of Jesus. And so it draws our eyes off of our distinctions and our differences and onto Christ who makes us one. 
for all of us are one in Christ Jesus. This is to give you great assurance. Why? Because there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Romans 8, brothers and sisters. This is what gets you to heaven is Jesus alone. Faith alone. If nothing in you can get you to Him, nothing in you can take you away from Him. If nothing in the world can get you to Him, nothing in the world can take you away from Him. Are you sleeping this morning? What is wrong with you? At least smile. Heaven is yours because of God's grace alone. Look at the people around you. They're better than you in some ways. And they're no closer to heaven because of those, better, or those, those, those things that are better. And look at them around you. There's many ways that you're better than them. And none of their deficiencies keeps them any further from God's care. They don't matter anything in regards to your acceptance with God. Think of the distinctions you make among parents. Some of you have good kids. At least that's what we think. And some of you, your kids are like not good. And you know it. And everybody else knows it. And moms especially feel the shame of this, the embarrassment of it. They don't want to talk about it. Makes them very vulnerable. The way that their daughter does this or that, their son does this or that. And, and then, you know, they feel the recriminations, the condemnations of others. And through faith in Jesus Christ, those matter nothing. You're accepted by the Father equally as the perfect parent. And so this should be a matter of the greatest comfort you could ever have. Now, it should remove all division. Like, we should not condemn each other for our differences. Now, there is sin that we need to deal with in each other's life. There is discipline that we need for each other. But these distinctions, these differences of opinion, these differences of the way you would do it, compared to, they, they should matter nothing. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus. This is what you and I have to fight to see in each other, to believe about each other more than anything else. This is what you and your marriage have to fight to believe about your spouse when you have those moments you think you could have, God, I wish I could have done better. And you think that, don't lie. You have to fight to believe, no, no, she is an inheritor of the eternal kingdom of God. I have to treat her likewise. You have to fight to believe that when you're fighting to think, Oh, I can't stand him. That's what you have to fight to believe about each other. That's what you fight to believe about us, about your pastors and elders. And then you, then you have to try to help each other believe this gospel, to reassure each other. I want to close with Romans 8. Would you go there? I, w- I want you to to take this home for yourself, but also to take this home to help each other. Now, Romans 8 begins with this most glorious declaration. There is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This isn't a license to sin. 
This is a license to believe that you're utterly forgiven in all of your sin. And the Father is not condemning you and rejecting you. He's completely accepted you in Christ, and so you have motivation to fight your sin. But then the context of the whole chapter is suffering. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this world is a world of misery. It's full of pain. There's glories, there's joys, there's pleasures, but it is very painful. It's full of sufferings. It's full of trouble, heartache, and difficulty. And one of the things that happens when you're in the midst of the suffering, when you're in the midst of your own sin, is you begin to doubt God's good care of you. And is the suffering that I'm enduring communication from God that I must be doing something wrong? Or that maybe I don't know Him? Verse 26 says it like this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What's the weakness? Am I a son of God? Is this suffering God's communication to me that I'm not? We, we have this weakness. Now, God help those of you who don't think you have that weakness. That's not strength. That's called pride. You're in a far worse situation than the weak person. So what do you do with this great weakness and this great suffering? Well, you do verse 28. Those who love God, all things work together for the good. Why? Because He foreknew you. Foreknew you. He predestined you. And those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He will glorify. What shall we say to these things? What things? This weakness, this suffering, this misery... What shall we say to these things that bring condemnation and guilt and doubt? What should we say to them? God's for me. Shut up. Law, you don't know the half of my badness. It doesn't matter. I have Christ. God is for me because of Christ. So shut your mouth. Look at what, what should you say? Here's what you say. God is not harsh. He didn't spare His only Son for me. He gave the highest, greatest thing He could ever give. What else won't He give? That's what you say. That's what you fight to say to yourself. When you're condemned, you say, I'm His elect. No charge sticks to me. God has justified me. You see, He's teaching you here what to say to yourself. He's teaching you what to preach yourself instead of listening to yourself. In all of the condemnations and all of the miseries and all the oppressions of the law, He's training you what to say to yourself. Who is to condemn? Hearing condemnation. Your sin, you know it, condemns you, accuses you. Others do it too. Just their looks can do it. But you may be misread. And what do you do with that? You ask yourself a question. Who can condemn me? What's the answer? Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised. He's at God's right hand interceding for me. Who can separate me from the love of God the Father? Can anything? 
Can this trouble, can this trial, can this distress, can this famine, can this nakedness, can this danger, can this persecution, can anything in, in life or in death, can angels or rulers, things present, things to come? That's helpful for you, mom, isn't it? So concerned about what's going to happen to your kids. Can anything separate them from Christ if they're in Christ? This, this, he's training you what to say to yourself. And he's training you what to say to others. Help reassure them. Now don't lie to them. This isn't flattery. If they've got hairy sin in their life, you, this is what you say next. <laughs> Deal with their sin. Confront them in their sin. This is what we believe. This isn't like psychological, look in the mirror, Jack Handy stuff. This is what we have in Christ. This is the truth. And he's training you as a Christian on how to fight faith. Men, he's training you how to fight faith. Fight for faith against all the difficulties. Don't be so spiritual as not to take the full comfort of the gospel. I think you think that if you enjoy this gospel too much, then God's going to see it and knock you down. That's your view of God. If you're having too much fun, he's going to pull the rug out. So you've got to make sure and not have too much fun. Because you view God pretty harshly. But look at who he is here. Look at who he is here. And look who each other is here. Right. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are so weak and, and small and needy. And so God, help us to have faith to believe that in Christ, we are all sons through faith that we are one in Christ Jesus and that these human divisions, these distinctions, these differences do not create any advantage or disadvantage, but it's only through faith. And so help us to see your great goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your gentleness, your tenderness, your strength in giving us this salvation. And that we know that if you did it in the beginning, if you gave us your spirit, only by faith, that we don't go on then in our own efforts and strength, but in the same faith, by the same Spirit, by your same grace. And then that we'd extend that kind of forgiveness and patience and fighting to think the best of each other because of this gospel, that we might truly be one. And so God, help us. Please, God, work in us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.